Chapter 11, Parts 3 and 4 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 11, Part 3. The Sailing of the Sicilian Expedition, First Operations in Sicily. In that year there arrived at Athens an appeal for help from Segesta, who was at war with her stronger southern neighbour, Silinus. The appeal was supported by the Leontine Democrats, who had no longer a city of their own. Athens sent envoys to Sicily for the purpose of reporting on the situation and spying out the resources of Segesta, which had undertaken, if the Athenians would send an armament, to provide the expenses of the war. The ambassadors returned with sixty talents of uncoined silver and glowing stories of the untold wealth of the people of Segesta. They described the sacred vessels of gold and the rich plate of the private citizens. Alcibiades and all the younger generation were in favour of responding to the appeal, of vigorously espousing the causes of Segester against Silinus, of the Leontines against Syracuse. Nicias wisely opposed the notion, and set forth the enormous cost of an expedition which should be really effective. The people, however, elated by their recent triumph over Milos, were fascinated by the idea of making new conquests in a distant, unfamiliar world. The ordinary Athenian had very vague ideas of what Sicily meant, and carried away by dreams of a western empire, he paid no more attention to the discreet counsels of Nicias than to vote a hundred triremes instead of the sixty which were originally asked for. But having committed the imprudence of not listening to Nicias when his caution was, from the highest point of view, wisdom, the people went on to commit the graver blunder of electing him as a commander of the expedition which he disapproved. He was appointed as general along with Alcibiades and Lamachus. This shows how great was the consideration of his military capacity, and he was doubtless regarded as a safe make-weight against the adventurous spirit of his colleagues. But though Nicias had shown himself capable of carrying out that Periclean strategy which Athens had hitherto adopted, his ability and temperament were wholly unsuited for the conduct of an enterprise of conquest demanding bolder and greater operations. When the expedition was ready to sail in the early summer, a mysterious event delayed it. One morning in May it was found that the square stone figures which stood at the entrance of temples and private houses in Athens, and were known as Hermi, had been mutilated. The pious Athenians were painfully excited. Such an unheard-of sacrilege seemed an evil omen for the Sicilian enterprise, and it was illogically argued that the act betokened a conspiracy against the state. 
the enemies of Alcibiades seized the occasion and tried to implicate him in the outrage. It was said that a profane mockery of the Eleusinian mysteries had been enacted in his house, a charge which may well have been true, and it was argued that he was the author of the present sacrilege and prime mover in a conspiracy against the democracy. It did not appear why a conspirator should thus advertise his plot. But though the theory hardly hung together, it might be good enough for an excited populace. Alcibiades demanded the right of clearing himself from the charge before the fleet started. In this case his acquittal was certain, as he was deemed necessary to the enterprise, and his enemies, aware of this, procured the postponement of his trial till his return. The fleet then set sail, and in the excitement of its starting the sacrilege was almost forgotten. Thucydides says that no armament so magnificent had ever before been sent out by a single Greek state. There were one hundred and thirty-four triremes, and an immense number of smaller attendant vessels, there were five thousand one hundred hoplites, and the total number of combatants was well over thirty thousand. For cavalry they relied on their Sicilian allies, only thirty horse went with the fleet. A halt was made at Regium, where disappointments awaited them. Regium adopted a reserved attitude which the Athenians did not expect. The government said that their conduct must be regulated by that of the other Italian states. This looks as if the Italians were aiming at a policy of joint interests, such as that which the Siceliots had discussed at the Congress of Gila. In the next place, the Athenians had relied on the wealth of Segesta for supporting their expedition, and they now learned that their spies had been deceived by simple tricks. Gilt vessels of silver had been displayed to them as solid gold, and the Sigisteans, collecting all the plate they could get from their own and other cities, had passed the same service from house to house, and led the envoys to believe that each of the hosts who sumptuously entertained them possessed a magnificent service of his own. This discovery came as an unwelcome surprise to soldiers and commanders alike. It was a serious blow to the enterprise, but no one, not even Nicias, seems to have thought of giving the enterprise up. What then was to be done? A council of war was held at Regium. Nicias advocated a course which involved risking and doing as little as possible. To sail about, make some demonstrations, secure anything that could be secured without trouble, give any help to the Leontines that could be given without danger. Alcibiades proposed that active attempts should be made to win over the Sicilian cities by diplomacy, and that then, having so strengthened their position, they should take steps to force Salinus and Syracuse to do right by Sergesta and Leontini. Both Nicias and Alcibiades kept in the forefront the ostensible object of the expedition to right the wrongs of Leontini and Sergesta, but Lamachus, who was no statesman or diplomatist, but a plain soldier, 
regarded the situation from a soldier's point of view. Grasping the fact that Syracuse was the real enemy, the ultimate mark at which the whole enterprise was aimed, he advised that Syracuse should be attacked at once, while her citizens were still unprepared. Fortunately for Syracuse, the bold strategy of Lamachus did not prevail. He had no influence or authority except on the field, and, failing to convince his colleagues, who perhaps contemned him as a mere soldier, he gave his vote to the plan of Alcibiades. Naxos and Catani were won over. The Athenian fleet made a demonstration in the great harbour of Syracuse and captured a ship. But nothing more had been done when a mandate arrived from Athens recalling Alcibiades to stand his trial for impiety. The people of Athens had reverted to their state of religious agony over the mutilation of the Hermi, and the mystery which encompassed it increased their terrors. A commission of inquiry was appointed, false informations were lodged, numbers of arrests were made. And Dosides, a young man of good family, was one of the prisoners, and he at length resolved to confess the crime and give the names of his accomplices. His information was readily believed, the public agitation was tranquillized, and all the prisoners whom he accused were tried and put to death. He was himself pardoned, and soon afterwards left Athens. But it is not certain, after all, whether the information of Andocides was true. Thucydides declares that the truth of the mystery was never explained. It was indeed never known for certain who the actual perpetrators were. So far the affair remained a mystery. But the purpose of the deed and the source of its inspiration can hardly be doubtful. It was wrought on the eve of the Sicilian expedition, and can have had no other intention than to hinder the expedition from sailing by working on the superstitions of the people. If we ask, then, who above all others were vitally concerned in preventing the sailing of the fleet, the answer is obvious, Corinth and Syracuse. We are justified in inferring that the authors of the outrage, to us their names would be of only subordinate interest, were men suborned by Corinth in receipt of Corinthian silver. In the main point, the mutilation of the Hermi is assuredly no mystery. The investigations in connection with the Hermi led to the exposure of other profanations, especially of travesties of the Eleusinian mysteries in which Alcibiades was involved. His enemies of both parties deemed that it was the time to strike. Thessalus, the son of Simon, preferred the impeachment which began thus. Thessalus, son of Simon, of the deem Lassiadi, impeached Alcibiades, son of Clinias, of the deem Scambonidae, of wrongdoing in respect to the two goddesses Demeter and Cori, by mimicking the mysteries and displaying them to his comrades in his own house, wearing a dress like that which a hierophant with the mysteries wears, and calling himself hierophant. The trireme Salaminia was sent to summon Alcibiades to return, 
but with instructions to use no violence. Alcibiades might have refused, but he did not do so. He went with the Salaminia as far as Thuriae, where he made his escape and went into voluntary exile. The Athenians condemned him to death, along with some of his kinsfolk, and confiscated his property. In Sicily, when Alcibiades had gone, the rest of the year was frittered away in a number of small enterprises which led to nothing. At length, when winter came, Nicias aroused himself to a far more serious undertaking. By a cunning stratagem, he lured the Syracusan army to Catani for the purpose of making an attack on the Athenian camp, which they were led to believe they would take unawares, while in the meantime the Athenian host had gone on board the fleet and sailed off to the great harbour of Syracuse. Nicias landed and fortified his camp on the southwest side of the harbour, near the point of Dascon, just south of the temple of the Olympian Zeus, which he was scrupulous to treat with profound respect. When the Syracusans returned, a battle was fought, the first battle of the war. The Athenians had the disadvantage of having no cavalry whatever, but the woeful want of discipline which prevailed in the ranks of the enemy outbalanced the advantage they had from twelve hundred horse. A storm of rain and lightning aided the Athenians to discomfit their untrained antagonists, but the cavalry stood the Syracusans in good stead by protecting their retreat. A success had now been gained, but the temper of Nicias forbade it to be improved. On the day ensuing, he ordered the whole army to embark and sail back to Catani. He had numbers of excellent reasons. The winter season, the want of cavalry, of money, of allies, and in the meantime Syracuse was left to make her preparations. The Athenian fleet and army was to go on falling away from its freshness and vigour. All Sicily was to get more and more accustomed to the sight of the great armada sailing to and fro, its energies frittered away on small and mostly unsuccessful enterprises, and when it did strike something like a vigorous blow, not daring to follow it up. The winter was employed by both parties in seeking allies. The Sicils of the island for the most part joined Athens. Camarina, wooed by both Athens and Syracuse, remained neutral. It is in the assembly of Camarina that Thucydides makes Homocrates reassert the doctrine of a purely Siciliot policy, which he had formulated ten years before at Gila, while an Athenian envoy develops in its most naked form the theory of pure self-interest, reminding us of the tone which the Thucydidean Athenians adopted in the Melian dialogue. A train had been laid for the capture of Masana before Alcibiades had been recalled, but when the time came for making the attempt it failed. Alcibiades began the terrible vengeance which he proposed to wreak upon his country by informing the Syracusan party in Masana of the plot. 
It seemed indeed as if a fatality dogged Athens in her conduct of the expedition which she had so lightly undertaken. If she had committed the command to Alcibiades and Lamachus without Nicias, it would probably have been a success resulting in the capture of Syracuse. But, not content with the unhappy appointment of Nicias, she must go on to pluck the whole soul out of the enterprise by depriving it of Alcibiades. That active diplomatist now threw as much energy into the work of ruining the expedition as he had given to the work of organizing it. He went to Sparta, and was present at the assembly which received a Syracusan embassy begging for Spartan help. He made a vigorous and effective speech. He exposed the boundless plans of Athenian ambition, aiming at conquests in the west, including Carthage, which should enable them to return and conquer the Peloponnesus. These had perhaps been the dreams of Alcibiades himself, but they had certainly never taken a definite shape in the mind of any sober Athenian statesman. Alcibiades urged the Spartans especially to take two measures. To send at once a Spartan general to Sicily to organize the defense, a general was far more important than an army, and to fortify Decalia in Attica, a calamity which the Athenians were always dreading. I know, said the renegade, the secrets of the Athenians. Thucydides shows what defence Alcibiades might have made for his own vindictive, it can hardly be called treacherous, conduct. The description of the Athenian democracy as acknowledged folly may well have been a phrase actually used by Alcibiades. Intense hostility animated the exile, but, one asks, did he act merely to gratify this feeling, or had he not further projects for his own career? If we might trust the speech which Thucydides ascribes to him, his ultimate aim was to win back his country. With Spartan help, presumably, he was to rise on the calamity of Athens, and, we may read between the lines, the acknowledged folly was to be abolished. One can hardly see a place for Alcibiades except as a second by Zistratus. The speech of this powerful advocate turned the balance at a most critical point in the history of Hellas. The Lacedaemonians, who were wavering between the policies of neutrality and intervention, were decided by his advice, and appointed an officer named Gylippus to take command of the Syracusan forces. Corinth, too, sent ships to the aid of her daughter city. Since the sailing of the expedition, Athens was in a mood of adventurous speculation and sanguine expectancy, dreaming of some great and wonderful change for the better in her fortunes. Aristophanes made this mood of his countrymen the motive of a fanciful comedy entitled The Birds, which he brought out at the great Dionysia. 
some have sought to detect definite political allusions in the story of the foundation of cloud cuckoo town by the birds of the air under the direction of two athenian adventurers persuasive and his follower hopeful but this is to misapprehend the intention of the drama and to do wrong to the poet's art the significance of the birds for the historian is that it exhibits with good-humoured banter the temporary mood of the athenian folk end of chapter 11 part 3 chapter 11 part 4 siege of syracuse 414 bc the island of syracuse the original settlement of archias always remained the heart and centre of the city however the city might extend over the hill above it the island was always what the acropolis was to athens what larissa was to argos it was even called the acropolis a name which was never given to the hill but the military importance of the epipoli the long hill which shuts in the north side of the great harbour could not be ignored although it was only gradually that the Syracusans came fully to recognize its significance. The water between the island and the mainland had been filled up. This was an inducement to the settlement to creep up the height, and finally the eastern part of the hill, known as Acradina, was fortified by a wall running from north to south. At a later period, during the domestic troubles which followed the expulsion of Thrasybulus, the suburb of Tyca, northwest of Acradina, was added to the enclosed city. Henceforward the name Epipoli was restricted to the rest of the heights, westward from the wall of Tyca and Acradina. It formed a sort of triangle, with this wall as the base, at the high point of Euryalus as the vertex. The Syracusans did something, though not perhaps as much as they might, to prepare for a siege. They reformed their system of military command, and elected Hermocrates a general. They fortified the precinct of Apollo Temenites, which was just outside the wall of Acradina, and also strengthened Polycna, the fort south of the hill near the shrine of Olympian Zeus. The first brief operation of the Athenians against Syracuse had been made on the tableland west of the great harbour. With the second act, which began in the ensuing spring, the scene changes to the north, and the hostilities are enacted on the heights of Epipoli. Hermocrates had realised the necessity of guarding these heights. It was accordingly fixed that a great review should be held of all the fighting population, and a force of six hundred was to be chosen for the guard of Epipoli. But the hour had almost passed. At the very moment when the muster was being held below in the meadows on the banks of the Anapus, the Athenians were close at hand. The fleet had left Catani the night before, steered for the bay on the north side of the Epipoli, and set down the army at a landing-place within less than a mile from the height of Euryalus. The soldiers hastened up the ascent, and were masters of Epipoli before the Syracusan host knew what was happening. The six hundred made an attempt to dislodge them, 
and were repulsed with great loss. The Athenians then fortified a place called Labdolon near the North Cliffs. They have been criticized for not rather fortifying Euryalus. The plan of the siege was to run a wall right across the hill from the cliffs on the north to the harbour on the south. This would cut off communications by land, while the fleet which was stationed at Thapsus, ready to enter the great harbour, would cut off communications by sea. For this purpose a point was chosen in the centre of the intended line of wall, and a round fort, the Circle, Kuklos, was built there, from which the wall was to be constructed northward and southward. The Syracusans, having made a vain attempt to stop the building of the wall, set themselves to build a counter-wall, beginning at the Temenites, and running westward with a view to intercept the southern wall of the Athenians and prevent its reaching the harbour. The Athenians did not try to hinder them, and devoted themselves entirely to the building of their own wall north of the round fort. This seemed at first of greater consequence than the southern section, since they had to consider the maintenance of communications with their fleet at Thapsus. But though they were apparently not concerning themselves with the Syracusan builders, they were really watching for a good opportunity. The carelessness of the Syracusans soon gave the looked-for chance. An attack was made on the counter-wall, and it was utterly destroyed. The generals then began to look to the southern section of their own wall, and, without waiting to build it on the side of the round fort, they began to fortify the southern cliff near the temple of Heracles, above the marshy ground on the northwest side of the great harbour. The Syracusans then began a second counterwork, not on the hill, but over this low, swampy ground, to hinder the Athenians from bringing their wall down from the cliff to the harbour. This work was not a wall, which would not have been suited to the swampy ground, but a trench with a palisade. At the break of day the Athenians, led by Lamachus, descended into the swamp and destroyed the Syracusan works. But what was gained was more than undone by what followed. Troops sallied out of Syracuse, a battle was fought, and Lamachus, the hero Lamachus, as comic poets called him in derision while he lived, in admiration when he died, exposed himself rashly and was slain. This was the third great blow to the prospect of Athenian success. Nicias had been appointed, Alcibiades had been recalled, now Lamachus was gone. To make things worse, Nicias himself was ill. The southern Athenian wall advanced southward in a double line, and the fleet had now taken up its station in the great harbour. The Syracusans, not realising how much they had gained in the death of Lamachus, were prematurely in despair. They changed their generals and were prepared to make terms. Nicias, strangely swerving from his wonted sobriety, was prematurely elated. He thought that Syracuse was in his hands and made the fatal mistake of neglecting the completion of the wall on the north side. His neglect was the more culpable 
as he had received information of the help that was coming for Syracuse from the mother country. But alike in his normal mood of caution, and in his abnormal moment of confidence, Nicias was doomed to do the wrong thing. All thought of capitulation was abandoned when a Corinthian captain named Gongulus reached Syracuse with the news that Corinthian ships and a Spartan general were on their way. That general had indeed given up the hope of being able to relieve Syracuse, which, from the reports of Athenian success that had reached him, was thought to be past helping. But he had sailed on to the coast of Italy with the aim of saving the Italiot cities. At Locri, Gylippus learned that Syracuse might still be saved, since the northern wall was not yet completed. He immediately sailed to Himera and collected a land force, supplied by Gila, Salinus, and Himera itself, and marched overland to Syracuse. He ascended the hill of Epipoli by the same path on the north side, which had been climbed by the Athenian army when they seized the heights, and without meeting any opposition advanced along the north bend of the hill to Tyca and entered the city. Such was the result of the gross neglect of Nicias. If the wall had been finished, the attempt of Gylippus would never have been made. If Euryalus had been fortified, the attempt would probably have failed. Gylippus immediately undertook the command of the Syracusan army, and inspired the inhabitants with new confidence. He was as unlike the typical Spartan as Nicias was unlike the typical Athenian. He had all the energy and resourcefulness of Brasidas, without that unique soldier's attractive personality. He set himself instantly to the work of the defence, and his first exploit was the capture of the fort Labdalon. But the great object was to prevent the Athenians from hemming in the city by completing the northern section of their wall, and this could be done only by building a new counter-wall. The Athenians themselves began to build vigorously, and there was a race in wall-building between the two armies. As the work went on, attacks were made on both sides with varying success. In the end, the Syracusan builders prevailed, the Athenian wall was turned, and never reached the northern coast. This was not enough for Gylippus. His wall was continued to reach Euryalus, and four forts were erected on the western part of the hill, so that Syracuse could now hinder help from reaching the Athenians by the path by which Gylippus had himself ascended. In the meantime Nicias had occupied Plemirion, the headland which, facing the island, forms the lower lip of the mouth of the great harbour. Here he built three forts and established a station for his ships, some of which were now dispatched to lie in wait for the expected fleet from Corinth. The Syracusans made a sort of answer to the occupation of Plemirion by sending a force of cavalry to the fort of Polycna to guard the southern coast of the harbour. But though the Athenians commanded the south part of Epipoli and the entrance to the harbour, 
the Syracusan wall from Tyca to Euryalus had completely changed the aspect of the situation for Syracuse from despair to reasonable hope. The winter had now come, and was occupied with embassies and preparations. Gylippus spent it in raising fresh forces in Sicily. Camarina, so long neutral, at length joined Syracuse, who had in fact all Greek Sicily on her side, except her rival Acragas, who persistently held aloof, and the towns of Naxos and Catani. Appeals of help were again sent to the Peloponnesus. Corinth was still unremitting in her zeal, and Sparta had sent a force of six hundred hoplites, Neodemodes and Helots, Thebes and Thespii also sent contingents. We must go back for a moment to old Greece. The general war is being rekindled there, and the war in Sicily begins to lose the character of a collateral episode, and becomes merged in the larger conflict in which greater interests than those of Syracuse and Sicily are at stake. The Spartans had come to the conclusion that they had been themselves the wrongdoers in the earlier war, and the Athenian successes, especially the capture of Pylos, had been a retribution which they deserved. But now the Athenians had clearly committed a wrong in their aggression on Sicily, and Sparta might with a good conscience go to war against her. The advice of Alcibiades to fortify Decalia was adopted, a fort was built and provided with a garrison under the command of King Aegis. From Mount Lycabetus at Athens one can see the height of Decalia through the gap between Pentelicus on the right and Parnes, of which Decalia is an outlying hill, on the left. It was a good position for reaching all parts of Attica, which could no longer be cultivated, and at the same time maintaining easy communications with Boeotia. But while the Peloponnesians were carrying the war once more to the very gates of Athens, that city was called upon to send forth a new expedition to the west on a scale similar to the first. Nicias wrote home a plain and unvarnished account of the situation. We are expressly told that he adopted the unusual method of sending a written dispatch instead of a verbal message. It was all important that the Athenian assembly should learn the exact state of the case. He explained that since the coming of Gylippus and the increase of the numbers of the garrison and the building of the counter-wall, the besiegers had become themselves besieged. They even feared an attack on their own element, the sea, and their ships had become leaky and the crews fallen out of practice. Further successes of the enemy might cut off their supplies, now derived from the cities of Italy. One of two things must be done. The enterprise must be abandoned, or a new armament, as strong as the first, must be sent out at once. Nicias also begged for his own recall on the ground of the disease from which he suffered. The Athenian people repeated its previous recklessness by voting a second expedition and by refusing to supersede Nicias 
in whom they had a blind and touching trust. They appointed Eurymedon and Demosthenes as commanders of the new armament. End of chapter 11, part 4 Recording by Graham Redmond